Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So as you know, my podcast is mostly short form. I bring things to street level, half documentation, and by documentation, me sitting on a toilet talking into my phone. And then the other half, uh, some science, some psychobabble, things I learned in therapy school, tips, tools, mindset, etc. But now I'm introducing what I call the Angry Therapist Presents series. And these series are uh, from other experts, people that I admire and learn have learned from, um, doing what they do best, which is going to be more long form. So if I'm in a shark glass, series is in a wine glass. And today, I want to present to you friend and trauma expert, Dr. MC McDonald. She's dedicated her life to trauma. And she has a new book called Unbroken. You should go pick it up. This is the trauma tapes. And these are real stories as she dissects the trauma through her lens She's a university teacher, she's a coach, she's an author, she's got so much to offer. You're going to get so much out of the next eight episodes, and we're going to release these once a week. Enjoy the Trauma Tapes. Hi friends, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald. I am a PhD trauma researcher and a life coach, and it's my goal in life to change the way that we define and understand and treat trauma. Here's why. Trauma is not actually a sign of weakness or disorder. It's a biological response born of strength. Without it, we would not survive. So I think the first step towards healing is being able to see this so that we can stop shaming ourselves for being human. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week, we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal. We bring together my research with our lived experiences so that we can all better understand and cope with trauma. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee, and join us. So we have a letter this week. Woohoo! Please keep writing us letters. We're running out and we want to keep doing this. Um, we haven't talked about this with each other, but we were talking about doing like a 10 episode season. But if we have more letters, maybe we can just keep going. Yes. Um, so write us at the trauma tapes at gmail.com and we will feature your story. Okay. This is a good letter. I like this one a lot. Okay. I can't wait to hear what you say. Okay. <laughs> okay. Dear trauma tapes. My question is not so much about trauma as it is about triggers. Mm -hmm. I spent my twenties and half of my thirties in a very toxic relationship. The most toxic thing about it was that it should have been over about five years before it was. I was so devastated and worried about wasting my time that I spent the next seven years completely single. I didn't date at all. There were definitely moments where I was lonely, but for the most part, I just felt peace. I met someone about a year ago and we started dating. The quarantine has made it really interesting because it's both, it's both been faster and slower than it probably normally would have been. The relationship is great for the most part, but that's not why I'm writing. The issue was this. He keeps in touch with his ex-girlfriends. He's friends with almost all of them. They keep in touch on social media. And although there certainly hasn't been time to hang out together this year, I'm not sure if he has plans to hang out with them in, in person in the future. 
at least two of them live in the same area as us, so it's definitely possible. I'm insanely jealous, so much so that I think this might be a deal breaker. I've never been the type to be friends with an ex, and I find it really suspicious. My ex cheated on me, and I found out about it because I snooped through his phone. I'm not proud of this behavior, but I only snooped because I knew something was off and I had to find out what it was for myself. There were hundreds of Facebook messages back and forth, complete with dopey hearts, emojis, and all sorts of sexual details that still haunt me to this day. Honestly, I thought after so long that I was over it. I don't want to be in that relationship. I don't miss that person, and we haven't had contact in years. But this new guy is great, except for this one thing. He won't give up these friendships with his exes, and every time I see him using his phone, I'm convinced that he's texting one or many of them inappropriately. I haven't told him this, but I've snuck through his phone many times. I haven't found anything, and I always feel awful, but I'm just so jealous of his friendships with these women. I feel triggered absolutely all of the time. How can I deal with these triggers? Or if he won't cut off these friendships, does this mean I have to just end the relationship? Is it a red flag that he won't respect my trauma? If this relationship doesn't work, will I always be triggered like this? Okay. I have a lot this, to say. This just resonates, this one. How, how so? Because I, like, I've never been friends with exes either, and oh. I don't understand when people are. Oh, that's funny. It's so it's a little foreign to me. So I totally understand where this letter writer is coming from. Yeah. You know, and that that would be triggering. Yeah. You know, even though I know logically that you can be friends with an ex and it doesn't mm-hmm. mean anything, mm-hmm. but I, I totally get where she's coming from. Oh, that's I feel the same way. Yeah. yeah. I've had, I'm not kind of the opposite with a couple of exceptions. I'm friends with most. Yeah. Exes. Um, and that has been a problem sometimes like people, sometimes people are not okay with that, you know? Yeah. Um, and this is a really, really common, uh, thing. So I just want to kind of normalize that. I, I get the feeling like the letter writer is, is thinking that like, she's kind of isolated or alone in this experience, but I hear about this all the time. Yeah. A hundred percent all the time. All the time. Well, Cause it's so easy to like keep in touch with people on social yeah. media too. It's yeah. not like you have to like call them anymore, you know? Yeah. And people, I think have like, we, you know, we, like we just discovered, I think they have really strong life experiences that go in one of two directions. You either have a lot of friendships with your exes or you don't. Yeah. There's not a lot of like middle ground. And if you're someone who doesn't, then you're going to, you know, be like you said, like, you're not, you don't understand how or why. I can't remember what you said. I don't know why I'm not. I mean, I could be like, there's no reason. It's not like, you know, I burned the house down and like ran away. It was like, it just didn't happen. Yeah. And and now so much time has passed. It would be kind of awkward. Right. You know, I think it depends a lot on like the circumstances. You know, if you break up with someone who you're in a community with, like in college or whatever, and you're going to see them all the time. Yeah. You share friends like that's going to be, there's a, there's a lot, there's more of both of like an impetus to continue being friends and also, um, it's more convenient, you know? Right. Right. Um, but if you're but in it, different places and you won't run into each other, then it's different, you know? Yeah. Or if you move yeah. cities or like, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. It's super interesting. So there's a lot. So I want to like kind of split the response actually, cause I, we, we need to talk about triggers. Okay. 
Okay, go. <laughs> because this is the thing that like that that we I think we just need more nuance with this. We need to understand what a trigger is in terms of psychology and 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 how it differentiates from other things because I think that there's a lot of stuff hiding behind that language that could actually be getting in the way of your experience and behavior. And then we have, and then I have advice for, I'm sure you do too, for like how to handle this. It is handleable. I don't think, I mean, we don't know a lot about this relationship obviously, but um, I don't think this is, this has to be a deal breaker, Mm -hmm. Um, but we can talk about that in a bit. Um, Okay. So to talk about triggers, we have to talk about the brain really quickly. So I want to say things I've said before, probably about the brain. This is just like an overview of what happens when you have a trauma trigger in your brain. Okay. So there's four parts of the brain we need to talk about. The prefrontal cortex, which is in the front of the brain, kind of behind the eyes that develops last. So little kids don't have a lot of neural access to this part of the brain. Your amygdala, which is the thing that this is like a smoke alarm. This is the trigger triggering thing. This is, this goes off when you have a trigger and what it does is, um, it reestablishes all of the neural connections and blood flow in your brain so that you're better at, um, situated to respond to threat. So all that part of your brain does is figure out whether or not there is danger. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it does recognize danger, it alters your brain function and your nervous system, which is important but we'll come back to that. And then there's the hippocampus, which is the filing cabinet for the brain. That's where all your memories go. And then there's the brainstem, which plays a critical role in interpreting signals from the alarm system and then sending out stress hormones through your body. If there is a threat. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So prefrontal cortex, amygdala, hippocampus, and brainstem. Those are the things we need to know about. Um, when you have a normal memory, it gets filed away in your hippocampus in that filing cabinet in a very ordered fashion. And so if you picture like a file folder, you have the narrative on the left-hand side of the file and it has a story form beginning, middle and end meaning attached to it, whatever. And then on the right-hand side of the folder, there's an emotional content. And that's true of all of our memories. Most of our memories have some sort of emotional thing. And so if I'm telling you something funny that happened, I wish I could think of an example off the top of my head. If something funny that happened at the grocery store, um, or something like that, I might start laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you thinking of something or you're just laughing? Cause we're talking. No. About- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, so the emotional part is in the memory file. So if I start telling you that memory, I'm going to start laughing and feeling some of the emotion that is normal. If you have a memory file that doesn't have any emotional content, especially if it's like a really important thing, that's actually a sign of disorder. So we need to understand that like not feeling is not ever the goal when we think about remembering, because that's just not possible. That's not how the brain works. So when you have something really overwhelming happen to your brain, the meaning of overwhelm is to bury or drown, right? So overwhelm meets a certain level of like, intensity in experience. Um, your alarm goes off in your brain. The amygdala sends off the alarm system. Your body responds with all these stress hormones and your hippocampus and your prefrontal cortex go offline. So you can't think super rationally and you don't file anything away in that nice orderly fashion. So the result is that you flip into like fight, flight, or freeze, which we've talked about because you don't have access to any like rational choice. And you um, get a fragmented memory file. 
So, and the memory file can be fragmented in a thousand different ways. The reason that that matters is that when you have regular memories, um, a file folder might come into your like consciousness, but the folder's organized. So if we're talking about um, grocery store stories from the pandemic, I have a file folder that might pop up that is a funny story of something that happened in the grocery store. And I can tell that story because the, the folder's organized. I can feel some of the humor and laugh, and then I can put it away. When you have a traumatic memory, um, what happens instead is the memory like folder is there, but it's not organized. It's not labeled. So it comes flying forward into consciousness, but it's super disorganized. And so instead of that narrative and the emotional content, you get some disorganized stuff. So it could be like a post-it note that just says danger Mm -hmm. and it's attached to like the color red or the phrase somebody just said, or a particular smell and your amygdala is watching. And so it's like, oh shit, there's that thing again, that red color was, you know, was a sign of danger. And so we got to set off the alarm and then it sets off the alarm and your brain and body can't tell the difference between the memory of the threat and the present time. So because your prefrontal cortex goes offline again, um, and the only thing that's operating essentially is your alarm system, it's Mm -hmm. just an alarm going off. There's threat and that's all that matters. So your brain and body respond as if the threat is current instead of remembered. Does that make sense? Yes. So people are triggered internally by internal body states. Like you can be triggered by the feeling of fullness or by a fluctuation in your own heart rate. Um, or you can be triggered by anything in the external world. Any stimulus can be triggering for you. And we, we don't always, in fact, we often don't have conscious awareness of our triggers because, um, they're not like cognitively available to you the way that most memories are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I might've told this story before, but there was a, um, a kind of a breakthrough case study uh, done by Abram Cardiner, who talked about this um, helicopter pilot who went down. Did I tell this before? I don't think so. There's a helicopter pilot who went down and survived and um, he came home and this was after, I think the second world war, but I'm not sure. Um, and he, um, started having this strange biological response, which is that anytime he went up a flight of stairs or down a flight of stairs too quickly, he would faint. Or if he was in an elevator, he would faint. Or if he got out of bed really quickly in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, he would faint. And so they did a whole workup and tried to figure out what was going on. Cause they were like, okay, this is a blood pressure issue. This is cardiovascular system. Something's going on. And they found nothing. And so they sent him to Abram Cardiner and said, you must have some sort of shell shock happening. And he was like, no, I don't, I don't have any trauma. I don't have any traumatic symptoms. I, this is just this weird biological thing that was happening. And Cardiner kind of saw what was happening right away, but he had to sort of tread carefully because what was happening was that the internal state. So the reason, one of the reasons he survived is because when he was falling through the air in his helicopter, he passed out, which means your body goes limp. Mm-hmm. And you're more likely to survive impact than if you stayed awake and kind of like stiffened. Right. Right. For impact. right. This is why um, people who are drunk drivers often survive crashes that the people they hit don't. It's not just because of the nature of the crash. It's because they, they don't brace for impact because they're intoxicated. Jesus. I know. So 
his body was interpreting fluctuations in blood pressure as danger and he would faint because that's what saved him the first time, right? Yeah. That's a trigger. We have taken the word trigger to apply to every time we have an emotion that we don't like. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to differentiate because when we're talking about trigger in the sense that I'm talking about, and it could be that we just need new language here, like a traumatic trigger is a neurobiological response that you don't have control over. And it's your body interpreting threat and overwhelm, right? Um, And it then goes down this pathway that it can't control. Can I ask a question? Yes. So once the pilot understood what was happening, Mm -hmm. did it stop? It did. Okay. And and Ardener, Ardener, Cardener, (laughs) um, that makes him sound like a cartoon character. (laughs) Ardener the Aardvark. Abram Cardener um, coined this phrase, which never got picked up, and I don't understand why, about um, that that thus began the process of re-education of reality, which means he's basically recalibrating his alarm system to be more uh, refined, to be able to tell the difference between actual threat and perceived threat. So to go back to your filing cabinet. So, mm-hmm. so he could take that folder at this point and say, yeah. and write out, this is what happened. Yeah. What, you know, in terms of the plane or the helicopter, mm-hmm. and this was my response to it mm-hmm. and close the folder. Yeah. File it appropriately. Yeah. And then when whatever happened to get him to that, so when he ran up and down the stairs, <laughs> like <Yeah>. he wouldn't, <laughs> he'd be able to access that information Yeah, and understand it. Yep. And then once you do that, you can increase the the span of time between like the uh, the stimulus and the response by like two seconds, and that's yeah. enough to have some distance to to change the way you respond. And then the two seconds increases to four seconds, and then six seconds, and then all of a sudden you have a whole lot more um, ability to like you know, intervene on what feels like a completely automatic response that's out of control. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. So it's important to understand that what traumatic triggers are, because they're, they're like a key, maybe the key um, symptom of trauma. Mm -hmm. But it's also really important that we, that we differentiate that from like, I don't like this feeling. Right. Because the correct response, if someone is triggered in the way that I'm talking about, neurobiologically overwhelmed, um, is to pause and kind of intervene and figure out what it is. Uh, a trigger is not, um, the, the point of a trigger is not for you to avoid this thing for the rest of your life. Right. Um, it's actually a sign that your brain is trying to get this file in order. Right. And so it's recognizing a fragment and pushing the file forward to be like, dude, this thing is not finished. Figure out this thing. Right. And so if you can tell the story and then have the emotional content and then tag that folder with an appropriate meaning, then you can put it away and access it. That's never going to look like not feeling. So when you bring up a story that is, you know, related to grief, you're going to feel a little bit of the grief. Right. That doesn't mean you haven't healed it, but right. it feeling that little bit of grief doesn't mean you're being triggered. Right. 
Do you know what I mean? I feel like I'm not being yeah. clear about the difference. No, you're being you're being super clear. So go ahead. I think that like like I love the spiling cabinet. <laughs> yeah idea because it's, it's very literal. And, you know, when someone uh, betrays you or cheats on you, there's so much shame, Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. involved in that, you know, obviously it's painful, but it's embarrassing. Yep. It, it, there's, it's shameful that, Mm -hmm. that someone would have done that to you. And and what is it about you that made them do that? Which is, I think where most of us go. Mm -hmm. Totally. And we have to understand that, that shame, I'm thinking about this so much lately, and I don't know if anyone talks about this. I don't think so, but the reason shame exists, like there's a function to that, right? Because like, if I think we talked about this last time or the time before, um, when you have shame about something and you internalize it as your fault, Mm -hmm. you then get this illusion that you have control and that that won't ever happen again. If you just figure out what it is that's wrong with you. Right. So it's that clearly I, you know, wasn't wearing the right, like kinds of PJs and that's why he cheated or whatever the hell story you're telling yourself. (laughs) Right. And then it's, um, it's not just like, it's not a useless thing. You know what I mean? Like we shame ourselves so that we can feel like we have control and make sure that 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 doesn't happen in the future. But when in reality, the far more terrifying thing is to think that that actually could happen. I'm not in control, but that's how, that's the move you have to make to step away from shame and back into vulnerability in a new relationship, you know? No. What's the step? Tell me the step. To realize that it's not all your fault but not just because of like a conversation about victimhood or who's up to blame or whatever, but that it's not all your fault, meaning it could happen again. You can't control the right. other person in a relationship. And the reasons that people cheat and betray are like incredibly varied. And right. so even if you figure out what went wrong in that particular relationship or what your role was, you can't prevent it from happening in the future. That's more terrifying to admit. Right. But if you can step into that terror a little bit, then you can open yourself back up to vulnerability. I right. think what this letter writer is doing, which is what a lot of us do, is to say, if I can just make sure that he's not friends with any of his exes, then this won't happen again. And unfortunately, right. you could make sure that he's not friends with any of his exes and it could happen again. Right. And which- I think I- ironically, what happens in a lot of these situations is if you keep telling someone that you don't trust them. Mm-hmm over and over and over again, that at some point they could be like, well, I guess I'm not trustworthy. Right. And then kind of create it. Totally. Totally. Yep. And even if you don't, that's still corrosive to your relationship. Right. Right. Because that that poor person hasn't done anything and you're, you're just punishing them for someone else's sins. Right. But to go, okay. So to go back really quickly to the trigger thing, um, so this letter writer is using the language of triggering. It sounds to me, and again, I don't know enough, so I don't want to say that that's not happening. It could be that she's having a full-blown trauma response um, where she's overwhelmed and like, you know, her heart rate is going up and she's feeling flush and she's not able to concentrate and she feels like she has to run out of the room or freeze. Like that could very well be what's going on. But it also could be that she's feeling like, it sounds to me a little bit more like she's feeling a little bit like she feels a little gross. She feels like a little, every time he picks up her, his phone, she's like, ah, oh, shit. Is he texting one of those girls? Like what's going on? And that's different. And it's not, not important, right? Like that's 
still a valuable thing that should be addressed in the confines of your relationship, but that they need to be addressed differently. If you're being triggered in the way that we're talking about when it comes to a neurobiological response of overwhelm, um, that needs to be handled differently than, oh, I feel a little uncomfortable right. about this. If right. it's if I'm right about that, that that's what's happening, then communication, this could be dealt with, I think, in a very easy way that does not have to disrupt your relationship, which is that you simply bring it into the room and mm-hmm. it becomes a negotiation, right? Like, hey, I'm actually really uncomfortable with the fact that you're friends with your exes. Can you tell me a little bit more about what these people mean to you, about why these relationships are valuable? Right. Can I have a little more info? And, you know, I feel nervous about this and I would like a little bit more um, access yeah. to your relationships. How, what feels comfortable for you? Right. And then you can decide together that like, well, you can always read these messages because it's never an issue or let's all go out to dinner together because I think you right. two really get along or, you know, this, this person I dated, but really we were friends before and we should have stayed friends because the dating part is like very minor in our story, but they supported me during this really difficult time. And so that relationship is actually really important to me. Yeah. You know, if you don't have, I think we have this terrible idea in relationship world and self-help stuff that like you have to fix this issue on your own and you can't bring it to the other person because you're going to seem needy or crazy or whatever. And that's just false. Like we have to stop. Right. It you does. Can't, you can't do that in a vacuum because, you know, she right. said she had seven years on, on her own mm-hmm. um, and she felt peace, which is a great thing, you know, to, to right. get to that place where you feel peace. But right. these things are not going to come up until they come up. Right. And, and when they do, like you said, you, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to say, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is, everyone brings a suitcase full of shit, right. you yep. know, to the party, Hundred <laughs> <100%. laughs> you know, because yep. we've lived and, we, yep. and we've had relationships and we've had experiences and mm-hmm. that that's your stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not, um, I, I think that's the only way to deal with it is head yep. on. Like, Hey, this is something because of what's happened to me, that makes me a little itchy. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, can, right. can you, can you meet me right. halfway? Can, right. you, can you help me out with this? It's and not, I'm, I'm not accusing you of anything. It's, right. it's not, uh, you know, right. It's yeah. Go ahead. And you can also use like language around recalibrating, right? Like, I think that that's really helpful because it's not, it doesn't put blame on anybody. It's just like, look, I had this past experience and it really shaped the way things work. And I, I need to do some, I need some help with the recalibrating process. Yeah. Yep. Like, could you give me a little bit more reassurance on a regular basis, you know, because whatever Yeah. I'm having this insecurity, um, the, and, and, the, you, and then you could get to a point where you're more comfortable and you don't need that. hundred percent, hundred percent. And actually this then could be a healing thing in your relationship rather than a rift. Exactly. Cause we assume that if I bring anything up that I need, that that's going to mean some big problem. And it's, it's actually the opposite a lot of the time. Right. Let me differentiate between that response if it's not so if that so that kind of way of communicating would be if it's this feeling of like discomfort versus a whole like you know when you're triggered you're under siege by your nervous system and you cannot think. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that's important is because and I can use an example from my own life but the reason that that's important is because everyone in the room needs to know that that's happening because it's not outwardly visible all the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, I used to have a really hard time around interpersonal conflict, especially in relationships. And I would literally 
dissociate and check out. And I could not remember what we were talking about. I couldn't have an opinion. I could, I literally, my mind was completely blank. I was not there. And I felt like I was in a tunnel, like I could hear, but it was very far away. It was just, it was being experienced by my brain as a trauma trigger. And it was sending me into this, like, you know, I was under siege, Mm -hmm. couldn't function. If I'm in conflict with somebody, they need to know that that's what's happening because I am not responding as my rational self. I'm responding as a, a person who's in freeze response, totally dissociated. Right. And in that case, what I need on a biological level is a break. Yeah. And if I don't have that, nothing productive will happen. Right. And so, um, so that's why that difference is really important because it, 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 it needs to be communicated differently. Yep. Um, and I should have been, I am now, but I should have been more, um, discerning about like other people's response to that, right? What I'm describing is a biological reality. It's not like, I'm not trying to get away with something. It is a fact. I can't help it. I couldn't then, um, I, I, it, it's just a thing that happens. I shut down. And so, um, that needs to be treated with respect. And if it isn't, that tells me a lot, probably everything I need to know about that other person. It is everything you need to know. And not anything about me, because this is just like saying like, Hey, I have a headache. No, you don't. Okay. What? Like that's, right. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, you know? Right. Um, and the same is true with the other way of communicating, right? If this person has a really like bombastic, you know, explosive response to the idea that you might have an opinion or a feeling about the way that they are in their life this way, that's data that you need. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, for what it's worth, have now been able to get to the point where conflict is not so much of a trigger. And so I can have an argument and stay in the room. And I can also be aware of when I'm starting to exit that way Mm -hmm. and say that, and that's critically important. Yeah. So the trigger won't always be a trigger if you work with it. Right. If you don't work with it, it will continue to limit your life. Right. That's the other thing. Cause we're getting wrong. What we're doing now as a society is everyone, like if, if you pull the trigger card, you're saying I have a free pass. We don't have to talk about this. Everyone leaves me alone, whatever. Yeah. That only reinforces that an act to your brain, that an actual threat is occurring. And so your brain then will start to be triggered by more and more and more things to try to protect you. Um, A trigger is not, and the the way to respond to a trigger is not to avoid it. It's to see it as an opportunity to heal this memory file. Can you, uh, is it too simplistic to say, or to think that, like, I think of my own experience in my own life and recently Mm-hmm. Um, we had to bring the dog to the vet because we thought something was wrong with the dog. Mm-hmm. I and um, I went to this, got to this place that you described that like my heart is beating out of my chest, which is not something that happens to me. I'm like lightheaded. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, completely having these um, biological responses mm-hmm. that are out of character. Yeah, uh, racing, you know, yeah. and I, I had to get to the point where. I said, okay, like your reaction here is really strong. Like what's going on. And, um, I, you know, I was able to ask for what I need needed at that point in order to get through that to compare it. You know, I have been in situations, um, 
not my current relationship, but in past relationships where I was triggered by someone else's, you know, past bad behavior. Yeah. And my response during those times was to snoop on the phone or to get pissed off, to get angry. Mm -hmm. So can you say that like those, that would be the difference between Mm -hmm. the, the two different responses that one com- completely overwhelms you in every yeah. way, shape and form. And the yeah. other is, I, I don't, I don't want to qualify them. It's just different. Them. It's just right. different. Like, and that's exactly right. Like you're not, your response in the case where you're, um, where you're angry or you're snooping or whatever is that's valid and important. Like, it's right. not that that's like, that's not important or real. It's just that exactly right. Like in the one case, you're having a trigger that's literally taking over your body. Yes. And in the other, you have much more room to change right. what you're doing or how you're responding or, you know, all that kind of stuff. You okay. don't have that in the other option. You need something else. You need another yeah. brain in the room. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. That's a great way to describe it. And I, I, again, I don't mean to disqualify. I mean that that they both feel awful. Right. And that's the thing. Like we have to be able to talk about these, like different doesn't mean that one is less than the other. It just means they're different, right? And an apple and an orange are not the same. That doesn't mean an apple is bad and an orange is good. Like what, where the hell did we get the societal idea that if I say (laughs) that a biological trigger is different than a, than a, a different kind of emotion, I mean, that's just a neuroscientific fact. Right. You know, that's not that there's no judgment in that. That's just, it's just a fact. And it's an important one because when the, in the way that you just described it, like you were like noticing and aware of like a a different experience in your body. Yeah. And the better, the more knowledge we have about the way that our body responds to things, the more that's just, we're just in a better relationship with ourselves then, you know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. If you weren't in tune to that, you wouldn't, you know, yes, that would be normal. Totally. I I remember like vividly, sorry, going back to work after mom died and sitting in my desk and saying to someone in the room, God, my chest is like, so like tight. Like, like, I feel like I'm having like some kind of like event. Yep. And he was like, "Uh, that's anxiety. Yeah. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, completely like not in tune with it and I didn't understand it. Yeah. So you, so you're right. You do have to, um, and well, and that's, you are having an event. Yeah, I was just because it's not a heart attack. Doesn't mean it's not a thing, you know? Right. Right. And for what it's worth, most people who the first time I had a panic attack, I nearly went to the emergency room. Most people that have an, an anxiety experience go they, they go to, that's such a strong, severe somatic response. Yeah. They go to the emergency room. Yeah. It's alarming. Yeah. I had a psychiatrist who was in his residency when this happened to him, when he had his first panic attack, he was a psychiatrist and he admitted himself to the emergency room thinking he was having a heart attack and it was a panic attack. Yeah. If those people don't know. (laughs) Yeah. My, my psychologist, my therapist had the same situation. He was a psychologist. Same thing. Right. Went to the emergency room. Yep. Yeah. And was like, what the heck? Right. You know? Right. And that's a lot of that is because like, I think we don't have, um, we live in a, in a world in which we, we become very disconnected from our bodily experience. And so we're not listening, but our body is giving us data all the time right? about what it needs, how it feels, you know, your intuition about different people, 
you know, like, um, so being able to open that channel and have a better relationship and a better awareness of what's going on in your body is really important for your general well-being. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult. It's hard yeah. to get to that place. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. So I hope it doesn't seem like the, the reason that I was differentiating was that I was trying to say that this person is not having a trigger. I'm just, I want to, her to have all the information she needs to go down the right path. So. Right. Again, if you are feeling this overwhelm that is like a central nervous system takedown where you're not able to concentrate or function and you're having a really elevated response that feels abnormal to you based on what's going on, um, that's, that is a trauma trigger and that's worth really sitting down with your partner and explaining so that you two can navigate that trigger in a way that feels safe for you and also doesn't just like take this part of the relationship out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, if it's an uncomfortable feeling, right. Jealousy or irritation or anger or whatever, then I would just open that conversation as soon as possible and say, Hey, I feel a little weird about this. Can we, can we talk about this and make a plan? Yeah. Um, and then keep checking back in, like circling back is one of the most, um, like life-changing relationship tools that you can have, you know? It doesn't all have to be done in one conversation. Yeah. And I I think you ultimately have to get to the place where you decide you're going to be vulnerable and you decide um, I choose not to live this way. Right. I choose to not think the phone is a weapon. Right. This person is giving me enough data or, or enough good feelings that I have to choose to live differently. Right. And like, I, I, I don't know how to talk about this, but the, the ways that we are vulnerable in partnerships are like crushing and also the thing that make the relationship like so special. You know what I mean? Yeah. I knew you were going to use the word crushing. (laughs) They are. It's crushing. It's perfect. It, It is. Yeah, it is. It's uh, Yeah. But I think like those relationships wouldn't be as special if we weren't as vulnerable. You know what I mean? Oh God, no. You can't like hold on. You, you can't control that part. You can't. Yeah. It becomes something that's not authentic, I think. Mm-hmm. Totally. You can have those relationships. I listen, I've had those relationships like, mm-hmm. you know, for years, yep. but they're not, that's not the special relationships in my life. No. And vulnerability is hard. And it's like a, it's a, um, it, it doesn't go away, you know, like it's, it's, you're not going to reach a stage in your relationship where you feel invulnerable. In fact, if you do, that's not a good sign. Right. You know, like right. one of the, yeah, I don't know. There's like a, some way to say this, that sounds better or poetic, but I just, we are all vulnerable and that's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. You're right. So, yeah. We weren't harsh, were we? It's okay. No, I don't think so. I mean, I meant I meant to be differentiating because I want this person to have information. Because I think one of the things that's the trickiest about about stuff like this is that we now have enough language sort of in the world about trauma to be able to talk about it without enough education to really understand it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about trauma triggers, I think a lot of us get the message that, okay, this is a, I mean, she's saying this, right? If this is a trigger, this is a deal breaker. Right. And will I ever, whatever the last question was, will I ever be able to be in a relationship 
even if this one doesn't work out or will I always be triggered like this? You know, it's, um, it doesn't have to be like that, but if we don't have enough, if we don't have understanding about what a trigger actually is and how to work with it, then, um, then we are at the mercy of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, none of it was meant for sure to be harsh. I think, um, and, and like I said, I really, I see this all the time. People are, very often, like our negative experiences leave traces on our lives. Like that's the whole point of, of studying this is figuring out what those traces are and how to navigate them. You know, it's unavoidable. And there are a lot of things in life that are uncomfortable. Yes. Right. And you know, this idea that they can be avoided or you can shut the door or you can say a word or you can take a pill and avoid them is that's not the answer. No. You know, Not if you want to live like a full, wholehearted life, as Brene Brown says, you know. Right. You could live a very small life that's insulated and doesn't engage with other people. And some people choose that because they've had too much pain. And that's, you know, that's fine. That's their choice. But it sounds like this letter writer wants a relationship. Right. So, yeah, it's totally possible. Absolutely. It's exciting. It is exciting. It sounds like this guy's a great guy. Yeah. And honestly, like, not to like put, I, I might try to reframe this as like a, a green flag rather than a red flag that he's able to communicate with people from his past. Yeah, exactly. You know? Right. He's not burning down the house. Right. <laughs> right. And we're behaving so badly that other people are, you know? Yeah. No, you're right. That's a really good way to re- reframe it. I like that. Not that the reason I was hesitating is I don't want to. I don't want to draw the line that like, if you have connections with your exes, that's a good thing. If you don't, it's a bad thing. It's not that simple. I just think that it could be a a sign that this person communicates really well, you know? Yeah. It could be a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Good luck. Letter writer. It's hard. It's hard. And I think relationships are hard. They're super hard. And yeah. Anyway. Okay. Do you have a tiny little joy? Uh, I think so. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) My tiny little joy is um, getting into bed at night when you've washed the sheets that day. Oh, that's the best feeling. Right? (laughs) That's I'm gonna do that today now that you said that. Isn't that like the greatest feeling in the whole world? Like when you slip into bed and the sheets are clean. I like I just love it. And I have a friend at work where I used to work, John, and we would talk about this all the time. And he would only do it like when he knew we had the day off the next day. So he'd get like a really great night of sleep <laughs> in his clean sheets. But it's in. it's just such a wonderful feeling. That's that's, that's so my funny. tiny little joy. I love that. That's really that's again, like I love like tiny little joys that are like easy to we can make a toolbox out of them. You know what I mean? Right. If you're struggling, you don't necessarily need to fix your problems, but you could, um, you could wash your sheets and know that that's going to be a great feeling to look forward to at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. There's nothing better. Yep. I love that. Okay. Mine's really silly. (laughs) I have, I bought this. So I've been, you know, like Instagram gives you ads all the time. Yeah. Which like whatever the hell, most of the time they're terrible. And I try never to buy anything from them because it's always like, you know, it's just weird marketing. But I've been tracking this little makeup product for like probably, not even kidding, like eight years. <laughs> okay. Have you not told me about this before? I'm not because I got it yesterday and I just tried it, okay. um, <laughs> which was hard to do <laughs> to not tell you about it. But so it's this product by Thrive Cosmetics, which is actually a really cool 
uh, company, which I'll explain in a second, but it's an eye brightener. Oh, and it's just like a little, um, it's a, like they, it comes in a couple shades and you can use it as a, um, eyeshadow or like a brightener. I have really dark circles under my eyes because my skin is like, um, tr- completely transparent. <laughs> and so you can see the veins and stuff. And so I always really struggle with looking like tired and sunken and all that stuff. And it's just this, this little pen that's like white sparkly and you just put it on the inside of your eyes and it makes totally brightens up your whole face. Oh my God. I need it. I know it's fabulous. Thrive cosmetics. Okay. Thrive. But the company is really cool because it supports, um, women in need. And so everything that you buy, um, they donate to, um, it's called, so it's thrive cosmetics and it's cause C A U S E like a cause okay. cosmetics. Oh, cool. Um, That's cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when, when you buy, they give to, to women in need. It's also hundred percent vegan and cruelty free. Um, so yeah, for every product you purchase, we donate to help a woman thrive. So they fight cancer, help people emerging from homelessness and surviving domestic abuse. Oh, that's so cool. Super cool. But I was really excited this morning. Cause I love like when I have a tiny new little product, I like get super excited. And sometimes that's the thing that motivates me to get ready is to be like, Oh, I have a new makeup thing to try. or I have a new shower thing to try. Fun. So yeah. I'm going to order immediately. (laughs) We got to go order more stuff. (laughs) So, um, yes, we'll put, we've been putting links in Instagram or not links, but little things we can. Yeah. And we'll figure out how to connect things more. Like I said, I'm trying to work with the internet, which is a moving target. (laughs) Daunting for me, for sure. But yeah, so check out our website at the trauma tapes and look and email us at um, the trauma tapes at gmail.com and send us your questions. If you have any like follow up ideas about any of the episodes or ideas that we talked about, um, we will address them at the beginning and yeah, send us letters. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Hey, if you have a passion for helping others and you want to create a more meaningful career or add to your current skill set, it's time to become a life coach with Lumia. When I became a life coach many years ago, there wasn't anything like this. So I developed this program alongside with Noel Cordeaux, Lumia Coach Training. And it's amazing. It's 100% live and online, meaningful, evidence-based education, real people, real community, ICF accredited to with 20 diverse instructors in a thriving alumni community. Go to theangrytherapist.com and click on Become a Coach and explore Lumia Coach Training. I'll see you in class.